Welcome to the Touching Into Presence podcast. This podcast is for people who are interested in bodywork, empowerment, and somatic-based practices. I am Nikki Olson. I'm Andrew Rosenstock. We are certified rolfers. Collectively, we're trained in various movement and bodywork therapies with an emphasis on somatic awareness and client resilience. Through conversations, our goal is to share and explore mind-body paradigms to offer empowerment possibilities. It was such a pleasure to be in conversation today with Dr. Stephen Porges. Dr. Porges is a distinguished university scientist at Indiana University, where he's the founding director of the Traumatic Stress Research Consortium in the Kinsey Institute. He is a professor of psychiatry at the University of Northern Carolina and Professor Emeritus at both the University of Illinois at Chicago and the University of Maryland. He served as president of the Society for Psychophysiological Research and the Federation of Associations in Behavioral and Brain Sciences, and is a former recipient of a National Institute of Mental Health Research Scientist Development Award. He's the originator of the polyvagal theory, a theory that emphasizes the importance of physiological state in the expression of behavioral, mental, and health problems related to traumatic experiences. He's the creator of a music-based intervention, the Safe and Sound Protocol, which currently is used by more than 1,500 therapists to improve spontaneous social engagement, to reduce hearing sensitivities, and to improve language processing, state regulation, and spontaneous social engagement. In today's conversation, we spoke about the description and origins of polyvagal theory, why understanding polyvagal theory is imperative for body workers, and how polyvagal theory gives a language to embodiment. We speak about neuroception, where polyvagal theory is going, and much more. We've also got a link to a simplified version of his work, The Pocket Guide to Polyvagal Theory, in our show info, and we suggest reading it to learn much more. So with that, let's begin our talk. Hello. Hi, I'm Nikki. Hi. So nice that you could come on and talk with us today. We're really excited about it. Well, thank you. Hi, Andrew. How are you? I'm well. It's uh, it's funny. I've taken a few of your courses online and talks. So seeing you in this office actually feels very familiar. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. Actually, sorry about that. I mean, uh, because I'd much rather be in person and uh, it, it's beginning not to work for me is what I'm saying. I'd much rather be, be more accessible as a human being. First of all, just thanks for making time for us today. This is an honor and delight for both of us. Thank you. What we would love to to hear about is, yes, give us a little bit of a background of what is the polyvagal theory. I, I'm interested in how you came across this. And for sure, the you know, what we... As Rolfers, a lot of kind of how with the fascist science and how things have evolved in terms of what are we doing with touch, a lot that what is kind of come, what we've kind of moved past is that we're not really distorting or changing tissue. We're creating a safe container as with our touch and that touch is what's giving the nervous system the ability to create change. And so for sure, like the, the, the elements of creating a safe therapeutic framework is what we kind of have a, as a hallmark of how we're creating change in the tissue. You, and, what I was going to say is you, rather than having me, uh, since, well, you can ask anything you want, but I don't mind kind to answer the questions relative to what you do. Well, yeah. Well, then, so the next thing um, that I'm very curious about is, more explanation on the neurophysiological adaptations that happen in the body in response to trauma. Yeah. Because um, as we, we feel that in our, with our clients and everybody's trauma experience looks very different. And, mm-hmm. and I think it's important to have more support for that, but for the validation of people's personal experience. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I just would love your expertise and your science Mm-hmm. background to give a little bit more support because you know we still fall in the realms of we do woo-woo work sometimes <laughs> and so which well for a disembodied <laughs> for a disembodied culture you actually do but you know yes, this is the world we're in um, <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, so, um, there's great resistance to becoming embodied, as you know. Uh, yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, anyway, I can go anywhere you'd like to go, and I'm sure we'll have a good time talking about it. <laughs> yeah. No, sure. no area. No area is out of bounds. Good. I, I guess if we might as well just start, since some people, as, as hard as it is to believe, some people may not know what polyvagal theory is. Can you give like a a, a quick <laughs> uh, a quick um, synopsis both of it and then also kind of what brought you to it? So, in the simplest way of thinking about it, our physiological state, meaning our autonomic state, is in between the world we live in and our, our reactions to that world. So, the word I use is the intervening variable or mediating variable. From your subjective point of view, is if you're feeling safe and relaxed, uh, you respond to the world with more resilience. And from a, a somatic approach, if you feel calm and safe, your body's available to be touched and manipulated. If your body's in a neurophysiological state of threat, the muscles tighten up, but that's merely a reflection of an adaptive state of your autonomic nervous system. So in your world, you are reading the client's autonomic nervous system state literally from the tension in the body. You're picking it up. But polyvagal theory directs you to other portals like the intonation of the individual's voice, their facial expression, and their gestures. And that's because in the brainstem, uh, the uh, nerves that originated or, or originate to regulate your heart, the vagus that calm you down and calm down your sympathetic arousal and excitation, are in an area that are also uh, uh, with nerves that regulate your facial expression, your intonation of your voice, your head gestures, and even your middle ear muscles. So, so when you're calm, you understand what people are saying. When you're in a sense more threatened, physiologically in a state of threat, you have difficulty extracting meaning. And so these are things we see in our everyday life. We just didn't have a way of labeling it. And polyvagal theory, in a sense, gives us a vocabulary to explain the situation. Like if you're very anxious, why aren't you smart when you're anxious? Yeah. And since this is a problem with many children, of course, they don't want to go to school because it's intimidating to them and threatening. So the polyvagal theory, in a sense, tries to put the body, which is part of what the Rolfing history, the body back into the equation of what it is to be a human. It does that with a different language. It's not a structural model, which was the origin of Rolfing, but it's a functional or a neurofunctional model, which talks about how the nervous system is regulating visceral organs. But in understanding the regulation of visceral organs, we start, we can't avoid looking at the neuroregulation of striated muscle. And now we're overlapping. Yeah. I don't know if it's because I've been reading your work and studying other stuff that to me, it's like, yeah, that just makes so much sense. Yeah. So yeah. obvious. To me, it's a little bit, it's a little bit amazing that it's taken this long to understand this. And what was it that brought you to, to oh, sort of figure it? Okay, I was on yeah. a email exchange yesterday uh, with a person who's using the acoustic intervention I developed. And she talks about it as having all these miracles. I said, that's not the miracle. I said, the miracle is that the theory got it right. Because the acoustic intervention is just derived from the theory. It says that these are, this is how the feedback loop should work. And if you start stimulating uh, the acoustic channel with prosodic sounds, it should get into that brainstem area that produces calming. And that's what a mother's melodic voice does. And so getting it right didn't mean that you knew it or I knew it. It was this is how the system is put together. And actually, uh, uh, the question is, where did I step into this or why did I step into this? I stepped into this because I was doing research in obstetrics, actually, and in neonatology. And in that world, heart rate patterns are basically the most uh, robust indicator of whether the baby or the fetus is doing well. And there's great, in a sense, concern when there are these massive bradycardia. And in, this goes back now to 1992. In 1992, I published an article in a journal called Pediatrics, where I talked about 
these heart rate rhythms as being vagal and protective of high-risk babies. And a neonatologist wrote to me and said, when I was in medical school, I learned that the vagus could kill you. Maybe too much of a good thing is bad. What he was referring to was these massive bradycardias where the heart rate slows up so much that it doesn't provide sufficient oxygenated blood to the baby's brain and is potentially lethal. And I was as perplexed. I said, how could a system that is protective, this what I would call the vagal protective system, how with heart rate variability, how could that be the same system that produced these massive bradycardia, which were also coming through the vagus? And it took basically a lot of uh, scholarship digging into books, you know, not, not laboratory tests per se, but going into the literature of several disciplines and finally arriving in a discipline called comparative neuroanatomy, not, not what I was trained in. And what comparative neuroanatomy was looking at the neural uh, basic structures of different organisms with the hope that it would provide insights into the evolutionary pattern. And the surprising thing came uh, that when I studied the transition from, I would say, asocial reptiles to social mammals, of which we are one of them, there was a repurposing of how the autonomic nervous system worked. So this massive bradycardia in a mammal becomes a shutdown system when we don't have enough resource or going into the world of trauma. This is an experience that people have or a child who's frightened where they pass out or defecate. This is that vagal circuit working, but not the vagal circuit that is resilience, supports resilience and protection. So there were two vagal circuits. That's what this taught me. And that they weren't, they were coming through a nerve. And this was the fallacy of how we learn Western learning. We learn about the nerve. We don't learn about what's going through the nerves. The nerves, a cable, a conduit. The nerve as a cable can only do something if a signal from its central regulator, the brainstem, gets to the organ and whether the organ is sending a feedback signal back to the brainstem. So now you have the neural loops of how this works. And the interesting part was the two vagal systems not only evolved at different stages of vertebrate evolution, uh, but uh, basically originated mammals from different areas of the brain, or brain stem specifically. And the I would say the most interesting part of this evolutionary journey, if you can move into a narrative about your neurons or source nuclei moving in the brain stem as an exciting story, is that the neurons that originated uh, in this older vagal area in the dorsal part of the brainstem, some of them go on a phylogenetic journey. They move ventrally towards the area of the brainstem that regulates the striated muscles of the face and head. And what that enabled the social mammal to do was to communicate their physiological state through vocalizations, facial expression, basically to broadcast to conspecifics whether they were safe enough to come close to. So it's quite an amazing story. Then when you take it the whole way out, and which is where polyvagal is going, because it's going now into an interventionist perspective, if you recruit that system of sending cues to safety, you're also basically your physiology is also calming down. So now we learn about uh, vocalizations, chanting, uh, breathing differently. These are all neural exercises. And above all, we learn that as a species, we evolved uh, to be cooperative, connected, and basically sociality became a neuromodulator for social mammals. It basically regulated our state. Now, if we flip into the world of let's say, rolfing or somatic therapies, one thing that the therapists often learn is that many of their clients have a history in which their connectedness with others has been challenged. And this often goes by the word trauma. But what it really means is that the connectedness was broken because the, there was a violation of, of trust or a violation of expectancy with a trust, well, formerly trusted individual. And so the nervous system was accessible and then became injured. 
And this is a powerful insult. Sometimes it's from the family. Sometimes it's from spouses or intimate partners. Sometimes it's basically going into a hospital to get a procedure and your body becomes accessible and you become injured. And the nervous system doesn't forget that easily. And part of what the trauma world is trying to do is first to honor the body's defensive reaction. That the fact that you reacted uh, with a defense response is your body doing good things for you. So rather than get angry at your body, which will keep it in defense, you honor it. You become aware of it. And then what you do is you start to experience the body again. So you titrate what you can handle. And, you know, rolfing is a portal into the body, learning that it's still there, or the person learning that they still have a body. So these are all, I would say, journeys of re-embodiment. And I think that offers a great explanation how some people experience traumatic events differently. Some can move through it, some get stuck, and it's there's not a right or wrong or something that someone is doing better than the other. It's just how we are wired and where we are situationally in, in our lives and our environment. And I mean, I think we can kind of speak to what's happening currently in Ukraine. Like I was just speaking with a colleague right now about how she is um, a lot of people are reaching out to her because um, she posted a video about finding moms helping um, finding connection with their babies, because right now there's a group of um, quite a big population of babies who are not feeding, nursing, Mm. as well as they were before the war broke out. And now a lot of these babies have um, their world of safety has Mm. been, you know, literally rocked to pieces. And these mothers are probably putting off you know, doing as best as they can, trying to escape, but then their nervous system is putting off fear hormones and baby is trying to negotiate all that. Yeah. Uh, actually, when I get off this podcast, I am talking to providers in Poland about exactly what you're bringing up because they're dealing with the blunt of it. But what you're bringing up, let's go back to the first part. That is, it's not the stimulus. It's not the event. It's the response to the event that's critical. And what we end up in our culture, we think that events drive trauma. Events increase a probability of trauma, but the state of your nervous system determines whether you react with threat-oriented responses or whether you're resilient. So and we don't really know what state we're in because that state's not always constant uh, because we're not really aware we're not a very skilled group at uh, witnessing our own bodily state. And so part of what we can get better at is becoming more aware of our own physiology. And we have, uh, but we have to put that in the context of our cultural history, which is really turn off our bodily feelings, sit still, work harder, don't listen to your body. And if we think of that on a functional, neurofunctional level, we are actively turning off the feedback loops of our body's regulation. The consequence of that is disruption of homeostatic function, meaning illness. And of course, uh, if you're doing somatic therapies, that's what you're seeing. You're seeing a lot of people who are numb to their body and who have a lot of what would be called comorbidities, you know, depression, anxiety, uh, chronic illness. Um, if we even translate chronic illness and chronic pain, to a body being locked in a state of threat, even after the pathogen or the injury has healed. Yeah, it's been very interesting with with my journey uh, because I'm also uh, finishing up some biodynamic cranial sacral training, which to me is is like in some ways the perfect like uh, physical modality of polyvagal theory because you you're listening to different what they call tides but one one way of thinking of it is you're listening to the nervous system entirely um, and feeling the the waves of of lived experience through the person um in in their let let me interrupt you for one quick moment and basically go back one one level and that is if you're not 
if your body's not in a relaxed or calm state, what happens to the tides? If my body or the client's body? You're you're a client. You're a human being. Okay. Well, because there's there's, there's both, I would say, because if my my body is not, not, then that person's body is actually responding to my, and then also if, if they're not, yeah. yeah, the tides are somewhat Im- impacted because there are these barriers, there are these resistance, which are, are healthy. They're, they're, they're coming out of a place of, of perception of safety. Um, yeah, well, I wouldn't, I, I don't use the word perception of safety. I use the word detection because perception starts giving uh, intentionality to it. But if we think about uh, when a person's on a table and you're as, as, as feeling the tides and you're going through that, um, if the person's body has tension in the body, which you can feel, the tides get disrupted. And if you, as a therapist, if you have tension in your body, that's being broadcast to the client. So the point of what I see, uh, like the focus on tides within cranial sacral is is creating the envelope or container of safety sufficiently, sufficient to allow the body not to be in states of defense. A easily stated thing, not necessarily easily accomplished because how do you let go of the defense when it's so deep, literally in the brain stuff? That's that's where good therapists have good hints about how to do that. Well, I think that is a good way of leading into. Correct me if I'm wrong. Are you you develop the term neuroception, the neural process that evaluate, evaluates the risk in the environment without awareness? I yes, believe that's, that's what it. I got from your book. And so while I was doing research on you reading your books and listening to the podcast and everything, I kept on um, coming back to the definition of neuroception and also, and then in, in also in the theme of creating safe, creating safety, I kept on thinking of the book, The Gift of Fear. Are you familiar with that book? No. Whose book is that? That is Gavin D. Becker. He's a security specialist, and he wrote a book basically talking about, um, so he, he interviewed a lot of people who experienced uh, physical or sexual assault. And all these, and a lot of the victims all had this gut feeling of not feeling safe, mm-hmm. but overrode that feeling being like, Especially this kind of becomes more of a, a gender uh, thing, but the a women, a woman who is like, oh, I don't want to be perceived as a bitch and I'm, I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be nice to this guy who's trying to help bring my groceries into my apartment. And then sure enough, he, you know, shuts the door and, you know, assaults her. And so there's, but basically in this book, there's a lot of these stories of, how the victims had this innate sense of not feeling safe, but didn't know how to respond because of whatever stories that they've grown up with of how they should behave or how they should be. And, um, and I just think that, I mean, what this gentleman was writing and what you are have spent a, you know, a lifetime of, showing with the polyvagal theory, the importance of being able to listen to our own security yeah. alarms and feeling and having permission to act on that. Yeah, it, I call it honoring, honoring what your body is trying to tell you. And the uh, person who wrote that book is talking about neuroception, obviously. And, you know, when we talk about gut intuitions. The question we have to do is sometimes we have to evaluate whether the, we use our, our intentional brain, our aware brain, to in a sense say, is there a possibility? Am I hypersensitive? Is my history... Uh, retune me to be hypervigilant. I'm basically going to tell you that uh, during the pandemic, people with adversity history have more mental health issues with the pandemic than those who don't, because the pandemic is really bathing us in cues of risk. 
And those who have virtually no uh, background of adversity are just kind of like floating through it, including not getting the disease. So we become more vulnerable to pathogens uh, when our body's in a state of chronic threat. And so we, I use this term faulty neuroception so that the, the, some people, um, because of their history, their nervous system is now retuned to detect neutral cues and sometimes even positive ones as if they're threatening. And so they can react to that. And that's faulty neuroception. And there is also the case where you feel so is so much in your body that no one can hurt you and you now get injured. So there is neuroception isn't always accurate is the point I'm trying to make. And it's really tuned based upon our own history. But in the world that we live in, and I keep going back to that, is I'm now visualizing uh, the matrix. So just like the movie, the matrix that we live in is a matrix of threat cues. I mean, just think about it. You think, turn television on, you know, hear what's in background all the time. And for some people, it's not in background as we're, you know, experiencing uh, uh, in the current not just for the pandemic, but what the going on in Ukraine. So these become, uh, they get translated into our own physiology. And I want to really em emphasize another part is we've also kind of grown up or been indoctrinated, whatever term you're more comfortable with, uh, with the notion that all we need to do is take away threats and we're a happy species. Far from that, our bodies not only need not to be under threat, we need cues of safety. We need reassurance. We need trusting relationships. We need sociality. We need connectedness. Absolutely. And I, I, I feel that collectively with, with what's going on, Ukraine, the pandemic, and then just all the other. I, I have two young kids, and whenever I'm sending them off to school, I'm always taking a deep breath and being like, be free but then you know mama bear wants to be like you know i get anxious of all these unknowns and, and especially you know with my kid coming home and asking me what what is a missile and you know we don't really you know i, I guess it's a fine line like i don't you know there obviously my kid is hearing some other conversations from other children from what they're hearing from their parents and um it's just, it's interesting when my son comes home and has these really big questions mm -hmm. and, you, you know, what is a missile? Is the world going to end? And, and it's like, oh my God. Well, <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot. Let me unwrap, uh, unwrap it down to your own experience. Let's go back to that. And this is how does your body respond to uncertainty? Uncertainty is a threat. And that's really what your body's responding to. And that gets in the way of literally being a good witness. And that's your, in a sense, I think we have to be calm enough to speak supportive enough of others to allow them to have voice, to witness them. And we're not good at that. So like, what's the parent reaction to your child in general, to children like yours? Oh, don't worry, everything will be fine. And actually almost say it in that way where you're not even listening to the feelings being expressed by the child. So we, we miss opportunities because we don't understand the needs of the other. The needs of the other are not necessarily for you to fix the world, but for you to listen to their views, to be heard, to be witnessed. Absolutely. I mean, my response was that because I often say, try to make good decisions, knowing that I will support you know, we, sometimes we don't make good decisions and we just have to, you know, live with that and learn. But he um, he was asking questions about leadership. And I, I I pretty much was saying sometimes people earn leadership by making good decisions. And sometimes leaderships happen because they were bullies and they just happen to be in that position. And um, so if, in a way, I felt like I was offering kind of the both ends of of the possibilities and for sure don't want to shelter my kids and thinking that and in myself I mean I would love to be like why can't we just be happy and get along and be neighborly and not have these huge conflicts but that isn't how 
you know, we, I mean, I mean, if that goes back to the survival of the fittest, I mean, there's constantly threats as we've evolved. Yeah, the threats are there, but the survival has only come through cooperation and literally trusted relationships. And we forget that. We forget that the bully doesn't really win in the long run. And this is actually the optimistic evolutionary story of mammals who were very small and food for reptiles, but they could cooperate and that's how they survived. And sociality became the neural regulator of who we are. And so through connectedness, we'll calm down. But we start to find out that those who are the bullies or these aberrant rulers are not connected to others. They have a, a severe deficit in their social sociality. And so their bodies are in chronic states of threat. On one level, you can have a moment of compassion for their physiological state and their perspective of the world, which is terror, it's total terror. But on the other hand, you have to have the compassion for the injury that they're doing to so many people. For me, well, there's two, I guess two ways I I wanna kind of go with that. One is that for, for me, polyvagal gave me a wonderful way of seeing those, both of what you're saying there, both the, the, the uh, response to a thing and a thing that whatever that whatever incident has caused conflict within, uh, and so it's been really really lovely. Uh, and there's a part of me that would want to go kind of into that more as sort of polyvagal as a a way of more or less gauging embodiment. But there's another aspect that I'm hearing within you, which is, and I'm I'm, I'm colored by my own background and so i've studied a fair amount of buddhism and buddhist thought and i hear a a bit of that uh Mm. within that and i guess i am a little curious because i've never heard you speak about this before well i we we are all on our own journey and i actually think that many people who think they're espousing compassion from uh are missing the point because they include retribution as part of their view of compassion. And I think that has to be off the table, especially in interacting with those who have been wronged. They don't want retribution, they want connection, they want to be heard, they want voice. So we have to separate doing the right thing uh, to, in a sense, cleanse the earth of, of what we don't like to understanding that when someone is injured, What's the priority? The priority is to be a good witness, to be supportive. And I see that as the true meaning of compassion. And I also see that gratitude is what you feel when you are compassionate and you see it taking hold. You see the gift of what we have as a human being. So we're ongoing, and this is my own writings now, is this building block of sociality, of connectedness. And that goes back to the origin of polyvagal theory as a nervous system that enables connection with other. And we can even push that and say it enables connection even within the body because we're still dealing with co-regulation between a conscious part of ourself and an unconscious part of our body's reflexes. But it's the same thing. We become compassionate for our body's uh, reflexes, literally what it's trying to do. We don't necessarily uh, are compassionate with its decision-making ability, but we know what it's done. And we realize that it's done the best it can do with the circuits that it has. And when we take that, we get rid of some of the shame and anger that we reflect onto ourselves. So yeah, there is a, my own journey is leading me to some common themes. And I think what it teaches me is that those common themes have a true neurobiological origin. They're part of what it is to be a human. I would say hair, hair. (laughs) But in in some way, it's uh, me also saying that because you are just reaffirming what I take to be true. uh, And therefore it's, it's, uh, yeah, I guess one thing that I've been wondering, I've been wondering for a while, but in this talk as well too, is because I've already said how, to to extent how obvious this sort of seems once Mm -hmm. you flushed it out, how do we get it to be more mainstream? I have a lot of doctors who are, I have a lot of cousins who are doctors and, and I'm like, I would love for them to understand mm. this, to be in relation better with their themselves and their clients. 
Well, I actually have taken that as internalized responsibility, not because you said it, but because it is a real issue. And uh, we created uh, an institute called Polyvagal Institute, but we have a working group of six academic physicians, which means they are in medical schools, working together to try to develop a strategy and bring it into medical schools. So the issue is how do you get it in? And also, how do you get in as postgraduate education and continuing education for physicians? I think the the real take-home message is that uh, creating safe environments is part of the healing process. And being nice or talking to your patients is helpful and that we're not machines. And the medical practice, there's a dialectic going on because there are many more physicians who want to be, I would say, intuitively polyvagal in form, uh, but the business model of medicine doesn't allow them to spend the time to develop the connection. So everything is cold and diagnostic and functionally pharmaceutically uh, treated, uh, tests and drugs, tests and drugs. And so much of illness is basically neurally uh, mediated and a safe individual is more accessible even to the drugs and surgeries. Their bodies are much more welcoming. And I think that's a message. Uh, a anesthesiologist at one of the major universities who gave, a, gave grand rounds on polyvagal theory and the whole uh, department got extremely excited because she was explaining basically that it's okay to feel safe. And when you're not safe, you should be in sense of yourself that part of the job of an anesthesiologist is to enable the patient to feel safe enough to give up control. She, uh, she was describing to, uh, to our little group uh, the group of academic physicians, that she had a patient that day who had failed anesthesia twice, and she was the third chance. The person had uh, the first time got into the OR, then ran out, basically jumped out. Second time, got on the table at least, but then ran out. And she engaged the person. The person did really fine when she worked with them. Basically said, we're here to support you. We're here to, you know, I'm here in a sense not the coldest, including in anesthesiology, because there used to be a history in anesthesiology of meeting the anesthesiologist the night before the surgery, so that you had familiarity when you went into the operating room. They cut that out years ago. And what you do is you meet your anesthesiologist literally as you're being wheeled in. So there's no relationship of this person who's going to now keep you alive. And that's their job. I love that explanation because I, um, it's my own little soapbox, but I, I, with birthing my kids, I had planned on trying to do it drug-free and non-medical as much as I could. That wasn't the birth plan. Apparently my second kid was born with a kidney disease. I had to birth at children's hospital and, you know, and so in, in motherhood, there's a lot of like, it's unfortunate because there's so much praise of, oh, you did it drug-free, non-medical while you're a warrior versus if you ended up in the hospital, you were cheated of what your body should be doing naturally. And I felt I had, I loved my births. I, the, um, every single person, my kid ended up having like a team of doctors ready to deal with him. Luckily it was a lot of, a whole lot of drama for nothing. But I was met with so much compassion. I felt so safe when I, I had to have a plan C-section. The, the anesthesiologist was talking to me the whole time. I was, it was, it was a very unique, beautiful experience. And I feel fortunate that I, I had that. I had that support to feel safe, to go through such all this, you know, medical procedure to to bring my kid in who there was a big question if he was going to be able to eat and breathe on his own all that and um so I think there is there's so much to be said about within the medical industry to offer safety and because I think that gave myself and my son a hot, very successful healing outcome we we were fine and um, but and I do know there are some some people who didn't have that that type of experience and do have some 
birth trauma around that. So no. I. All I was going to say is that you were in a, a good environment for the delivery. And that was a children's hospital. And uh, of the medical professions, pediatricians, and which everyone in that hospital is a pediatrician of different specialties, um, that's part of their training. That's part of who they are. It, it's a much, I would say, a, a, a welcoming subdiscipline of medicine. And you're also dealing in a high-risk environment. And there's another factor there, and that is people who are intensivists or working in high-risk environments. Their salaries are, are reasonably good. It's not the same as seeing an internist or a family practitioner. So they have, they're not under the same financial pressure that, let's say, a developmental pediatrician would be. It's very interesting about the inequalities in the medical profession regarding salaries. So like surgeons make quite a bit of money. Uh, so there's a differential bit. So procedures make money, risk populations pay better. So, but wellness isn't even on the, you know, it's not, it's well down the list. I like the old, uh, there's, I don't know how true this is. My wife is Chinese and I heard this thing that, Traditionally, Chinese doctors were only paid when you were sick. Uh, sorry, the other way around. They were paid when you paid them when you were healthy in that you were paying them for health. And then when they were sick, everything was, was complimentary because their job was to keep you healthy. And I always, I don't know the truth of that, but I liked it as, a, as a, an idea. Well, I thought the HMOs had that vision, but what they meant was reduce procedures. You know, it's like raise the bar to get the services that you're paying for. So you start getting into that world. Healthcare is, you know, given the fact that in the U.S., I think we pay more per capita than any country. And of course, the healthcare isn't very good. And that means even if you have a lot of money, it doesn't guarantee that your healthcare is good. Um, and I think a lot has to do with the structure. So back with what can be done, the Polyvagal Institute is also has a contract, a small contract from a relatively large uh, medical care company that runs clinics to do a pilot project of teaching their staff within these clinics to be more polyvagal informed. And this means from receptionist to everyone, having an understanding of that your presence with another affects the physiology and that physiology, that physiological state will mediate whether or not your health plan, your treatment plan is effective. So on the end of the story, I mean, when you ask why is it more accepted or why, how do you get in there? I sit back with a very optimistic view that you can't enforce knowledge or strategies when people's nervous systems are under states of threat. When the community, when the society, when the medical community feels less under pressure, it will become more open to optimizing the human experience. At the moment, the physicians feel that they're basically fixing things that are broken. And that is not the, the that's not the metric of health. Wouldn't you think that um, some of the polyvagal theory information should be provided to the insurance companies? <laughs> because since aren't they the ones that are pushing their agenda wow. on what the doctor should be, can and can't do or afford? I, I think insurance companies have, well, this is part of what we're working with this clinic for, the, which is basically a Medicare advantage. They get paid and they just they want to keep procedures low and people more satisfied because they're leaving their system and also their physicians are quitting. So there's all these dynamics going on within the medical world. People are burnt out. There's very little satisfaction. People who are physicians feel they can't practice medicine the way they want. So it's, but in their world, it's all dollars and cents. But the answer to that is when just the Chinese uh, statement is that when your uh, population base is healthier, their medical expenses go down. And what you, of course, find out in uh, tracking medical expenses, 
a few people are taking most of the services. They have what, again, the medical community uses words like comorbidities. And we need to get rid of that. And we need to start saying, if the nervous system and the body is in a constant state of threat, the neural feedback loops aren't working efficiently or effectively, and the end organs are going to get disease. So everything's predictable on that level. But the medical community does not have a conceptualization or a measure to assess neuroregulation of organs. It's just not where they've been. It's been blood tests, biopsies. So when you say uh, your, your, uh, your kidneys aren't working, um, it's not about the neuroregulation of the kidneys. It's about something else. It's about tissue damage. Uh, so it's the conceptualization of the visceral organs as really being neurally regulated. And the, the first reaction to threat is to dampen that neural regulation and divert resources for defense. And the second stage is that if you dampen the neural regulation, the end organs will be damaged because they're not getting the right regulation surveillance of it. But it's very intuitive, but you have to have a conceptualization that organs are being regulated by the brain. And most people or most physicians think of top, uh, the top ending at the neck. And the bottom is really uh, a mechanical thing that can be replaced and fixed. And when you have things like chronic anxiety, it's in the head. It has nothing to do with what your body is telling your brain. Have you seen changes in that? Because you've been in this field for a while. And right now, mindfulness and wellness are big buzzwords uh, and mind yeah. body and things like that. Do you see changes going on mainstream? I, I or? think even things like mindfulness, which has traction, meditation, I think these are misdirections. They're literally saying, okay, we can do this by having 20 minutes of this or, you know, we can fix it. And I think it's really much more of a conceptualization of the human and that's still not being addressed. And that is really in the basics of what we learn. So from a, let's say a, the initial Rolfing strategy was really structure and then function will follow structure. Uh, but we also have it going the other way that uh, structure will follow function that, you know, you have to, in a sense, it's a handshaking routine where function is really a code word for neural regulation and structure is what the body is doing. I think this handshaking between structure and function uh, is kind of missing within uh, how we train our physicians and we train, uh, educate uh, healthcare professionals. Um, I think we need to, in a sense, appreciate both so we can have structural damage but that structural damage will influence function as well. And when we say function, it's the entire nervous system. Um, going back, do I see things changing? I will tell you, even with the turmoil in the world going on right now and the pandemic and Ukraine, uh, I am more optimistic now than I ever have been. And part of it is because uh, I would say my day-to-day uh, engagement is no longer contained within the academic world. And the academic world, like the medical world and like all these others, is really, it's a battleground. It's a battleground of individual survival and individual accumulation. So it's, it's the metaphors are all the same. Rather than more stuff and more money, it's more prestige, more publications, more grant resources. It's all the same. It's a metaphor and it misses the, I would say, the richness of the underlying discipline, which is to understand humanity, understand what it is to be a living system, what it is to be a human being. And I feel really fortunate to have had decades of, let's say, academic experience that I can now integrate into at least it's meaningful to me. And as it becomes meaningful to me, I developed strategies to communicate, including being on podcasts. So I think the optim- I think it's a good journey. And uh, it's not uh, the issue with polyvagal theory is from a science perspective, it's difficult to really put your hands around it. So if you think not being a scientist has difficulties as a scientist, it requires a working knowledge of many, many disciplines. 
And few people can preach that. And because they can't preach it, they think, you know, it doesn't have the generalizability. But I view it as Rubik's Cube and that there are different surfaces and the underlying core principles are the same uh, in all the sub-disciplines and sub-domains. I think uh, there are basic principles in living systems including uh, mitochondria or bacteria that have to do with both sociality, defensiveness, and implosion or shutting down totally. So these are basic, you know, they're polyvagal constructs about how the autonomic nervous system works, but they're generalizable to the smallest uh, part of our system. So, you know, it's really, I would say, as I learned to apply principles of polyvagal theory to all forms of living systems. I'm learning a lot more. I see the principles are really quite universal. They may not whistle, they may not smile, or they may not vocalize, but they are cueing each other with subtle signals that it's safe to reproduce, it's not safe to reproduce, or it's all over. I'm kind of embarrassed by how easy this is, but I never really thought of it until you just said this. But I, you know, right now in some scenes, the biopsychosocial model is getting very, very popular. And really, that to me, I putting it together, polyvagal theory is that it is a biopsychosocial model. It really gives, uh, and it's I'm like embarrassed that people are going to listen to this and hear how how obvious that is, and that's like slowly catching up. But yeah. Yeah. Well, the problem, likewise, that it's a misdirection about medication. I think as we layer it with these words, we're using complicated constructs and we miss the potency of these foundational survival systems. And if we understood that these survival, foundational survival systems are doing their job and we can see how they're being triggered, and that's what neuroception uh, enables us to understand. And we live neuroception every moment of our day, uh, we start to realize that we can turn on our defenses. Everyone acknowledges that. But I think the unique and optimistic view of polyvagal theory is that we can turn off defenses through cues of safety. And that feeling safe is nothing more complicated than our autonomic nervous system talking to our conscious brain. We feel safe. We give it a word. And what does that safety enable us? It enables us to be accessible to others, to be creative, to be spiritual, uh, to, in a sense, explore life. And when we're not safe, that's not our, that's not our, uh, it's not our options. And I think the trauma world has taught me so much of what it is to be a human not because they're experiencing those features of being a human, but because those features of humanity have been compromised as a function of being traumatized. But their memories, their intentionality, their dreams tell you what they have lost. And that is, is brings a heart-to-heart dialogue about these things. That, and it gives you optimism because it says, you know, the parts of us that make us who we are as, as a human species that really are wonderful are also vulnerable and we need to learn to protect them and to solidify those features it's, it's very beautifully said as we are wrapping up the time and, and do want to be mindful of that i, I one question I, I don't know if the way to answer it is sort of where do you see polyvagal there where do, where do you see it going way to see it growing yeah i i i'm on i'm on the motorcycle i'm on the horse it's it's moving on its own where's it going um i received a book from an architect and i was one of the three people she dedicated the book to it's moving into architecture it's moving into education big time into education it's moving into coaching athletics because when people uh basically decompensate, fall apart in competition, they can see it in terms of autonomic nervous system. So there are people out there that have all these in, in the world of addiction. That's an interesting one where there are now a couple books or at least one book written on that. And uh, on our Polyvagal Institute website, where we have affinity groups for self-organizing affinity, 
And within a couple of months of starting this, we had 700 people uh, affiliating with polyvagal theory and addiction. So you can see people are going or, or marching with their feet or keyboards. And we're seeing this happen. So I sit back and I am in basically, uh, I would say on one level, awe, wonderment, and also have a sense of gratitude because I'm not driving it. I'm supporting it. I'm witnessing it. So if we go into this notion of I'm nurturing it through, uh, I would say, my own benevolence, my own generosity. And I, I really, I love to see creativity in others. And I think it's a wonderful journey to to experience that in one's own lifetimes. Now, now that's a kind of sense of gratitude. I'm not saying I'm leaving shortly, but I'm saying uh, uh, when when you're an academic, you hope that your ideas will be used. And you, I mean, that's a long-term dream. And you often have that dream with the belief that your job is to archive the information because you will be alive. But to see the embodiment of these ideas while being alive is really, I mean, it triggers in me a sense of gratitude because most mornings or many mornings, probably most, I get emails from people, spontaneous emails from people who have been impacted by the theory is as it gave meaning to their lives, especially those who have suffered adversity. And I sit back and I listen and I, you know, I, I listen to the voice in the email and I have this smile and it just, it makes life for me uh, very rewarding. In addition to that, is, is polyvagal theory also evolving? Are you finding more about it as you go along? Oh, yeah. It, it keeps, I mean, the, the latest shift in focus uh, has been to write papers on sociality and the science of safety. So it's much more in terms of experiential. Um, I'm also learning about I would say the rules of the theory as they go down to a molecular level. And that I hadn't even known about until colleagues started to invite me into discussions about that. I didn't even think about chronic pain and polyvagal theory until a group of spinal physicians created literally a think tank on uh, uh, a couple of times a month basically talking about polyvagal theory and chronic pain because they learned that surgery didn't work and they were so angry at having spent 20 or 30 years doing this and actually injuring people when uh, psychological counseling or group meetings could bring them to states of being pain three, living with a structural issue, but also not being compromised by the surgery. Oh, it's, it's been an interesting journey. The education world is also quite exciting to watch people develop intervention models for the classrooms that are based on the principles of polynatal theory. Well, what, I, what we opened the podcast with is I feel like the polyvagal theory, your amazing contribution has helped anchor, give a scientific understanding of what has been um, anecdotally felt and experienced and helps give more answers and support. So people have something, some kind of realness because in this contemporary modern life, we want some hard facts to be able yeah. to anchor into something and, and to know that it's true because sometimes people, they need to have the scientific understanding to really, you know, buy into it. And I think that this is what I've been so grateful for mm -hmm. learning more and more about because it helps me educate clients mm -hmm. and understand my own personal experiences. I mean, I definitely had some freeze moments to some horrific things that have happened in my life. And, you know, I had to work through it being like, well, why didn't I have strength to, to over overcome yeah. that? And, and, um, and I think that that just, it helps humanize mm -hmm. the experience rather than falling victim and helpless. Yeah, I, I think there's uh, one area that I'm interested in that's very relevant to your constituency, and that is the link between fascia and the autonomic nervous system. And that is extraordinarily unstudied. And when people study that, they'll get a better 
when when the when the uh, focus on that is sufficient and the literature is well developed, then the linkage between what you do by dealing with fascia and fascial release will start having a different meaning in terms of the consequences on autonomic regulation and mental health. And you know that in your practices, many people who come to it have also, it's not really structural problems or pains. They're coming for a type of counseling. They're coming from a counseling that leads them back into their body. They're coming through a, a, a desire to be more integrated in themselves, which means that their bodies are locked in a state of threat. Well, I think you, I think you, your work, Along with, you know, I believe what I've heard um, you and uh, Peter Levine have, co- have some shared thoughts. I mean, Peter Levine has been a big part of uh, the understanding of trauma and how that is, plays a role in the body. But I, again, I, I, I hear it in, in with amongst colleagues and just the, the overall chatter. What we do is I think you pointing out that the autonomic nervous system has more than just flight and um, flee, that there is that the, the freeze, which is, which a lot of people experience and it might not yeah. be a total freeze, a shutdown, mm. like we see with a deer or a mouse that, but, you know, we see it a lot in the breath. I mean, mm. I have a, some clients who, you know, just to be able to experience that full breath, it's a challenge because there was something in their life that they got stuck in a fear response or a, a death and just were still in that short grief. And whenever I, you know, it's happened multiple times of when we're working with someone to really explore how the breath can really move from back front to back, side to side, up and down in the three dimensional way that should amazing stories come out of like, oh, I'm I'm not doing that because I remember my breath being short because of this experience. And I think, um, again, I think what you offer and helps us create a language around what's true in the body validates people's experience. And then that, that validation gives people the safety to, to let go what they no longer need but still honor why their breath was, you know, they, they were in pain and that's what the breath adapted to do. It served its purpose, but it doesn't need to be there forever. Yeah. Let me, I just finished a paper on what I call the science of safety. And the opening paragraph is saying that the agenda of this paper is to move feelings of safety from a subjective uh, measure to an objective uh, neurophysiological metric meaning that feelings of safety are measurable, not by just asking people, but by looking at their autonomic nervous system. It's a clear signature. And you're asking the same thing. Yeah, it's, and we won't have time for this, but there was one of the ways I did want to get into sort of that as, as not just from the feeling, but like the voice, the, the facial, all of that stuff. We won't have time for it. But I know that once I started to understand more about polyvagal theory, hearing uh, like you and Nikki, you were talking about the breath, but also hearing the voice and 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 hearing what wasn't in the voice, the um, you know aspects of of that, uh, which is still a subjective experience on my part, although a learned. It's a, it's aspect. more of a neuroceptive, so it's yeah. subjective, right. but it's your body's reacting to it. And that's I think where the take home is that, uh, which means that when your body reacts to the intonation of another person's voice it triggers a physiological shift and now it's interoceptive and you're now yeah. trying to make meaning out of those bodily feelings. Yeah. Which I think is great in the, in the clinic and difficult in life. <laughs> um, but we, we do want to, we, we, we do want to honor your, your time. And this has been uh, truly a treat, uh, truly a pleasure. Um, and I, I hope you are aware of just how how grateful and we are for this, but how how, how wonderful, how, just how appreciated you are. Well, 
you know, it always, I was going to say it's this part of the child in me. It always helps to remind me. But so thank you very, thank you very much. But I also want to tell you that I've had a relationship with the Rolfing community since the, uh, I guess it was the mid or late 1970s. And the link was Peter Levine. Yeah, I, I had read that he was your, in one of the recent journals, he was, uh, you were his like, supervisor. No, no, he called me. me. I was a faculty member when he was finishing up his dissertation. But no, I wasn't his. No one's Peter's supervisor. (laughs) Uh, Peter is a visionary. He's creative. And he was always a treat. Even when I was this, I'd say, uh, young faculty member, it was always a treat to be here, hear his questions. So we've been good friends for decades. So I really, I appreciate what he's done. And I appreciate that he brought me into what I would call this very interesting world. I just, again, I am, thank you so much for creating time for us. I, I know our listeners will really appreciate it. You're a treasure for understanding what we're doing. And, um, you know, I, think I can speak for the majority of our our structural integration community and somatic community that your contribution to understanding what goes on with the body and and how to heal is is immensely appreciated and again thank you for taking time to spend with us well thank you Nikki Thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. And I will tell you that I've always felt very welcomed within the community. So thank you. We wish you a good day and uh, we'll, we'll be in touch. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for listening to us at Touching Into Presence. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. You can find out more about Dr. Porges and polyvagal theory at polyvagalinstitute.org. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. When you do this, it really helps other people find us, and we greatly appreciate your support. We look forward to hearing back from you and seeing you on our next conversation at Touching Into Presence. Bye-bye.